Welcome to Can You Feel It? This podcast aims at expanding our intellectual horizons. I am Jeanne Proust, and I'd like to pull philosophy down from its academic ivory tower by deciphering and discussing philosophical texts and ideas with you. Let's instill some thinking in our life to better feel and philosophize around. In this episode, we will read a text written by Henri Bergson, and dive into questions about the nature of time. des yeux sur le cadran d'une horloge, le mouvement de l'aiguille qui correspond aux oscillations du pendule, je ne mesure pas de la durée comme on paraît le croire. Je me borne à compter des simultanéités. When I follow with my eyes on the dial of a clock, the movement of the hand which corresponds to the oscillation of the pendulum, I do not measure duration. I merely count simultanéities. En dehors de moi, dans l'espace, il n'y a jamais qu'une position unique de l'aiguille et du pendule, car des positions passées, il ne reste rien. Outside of me, in space, there is never more than a single position of the hand and the pendulum, for nothing is left of the past positions. Au-dedans de moi, un processus d'organisation ou de pénétration mutuelle des faits de conscience se poursuit, qui constitue la durée vraie. Within myself, a process of organization or interpenetration of conscious states is going on, which constitutes true duration. C'est parce que je dure de cette manière que je me représente ce que j'appelle les oscillations passées du pendule, en même temps que je perçois l'oscillation actuelle. It is because I endure in this way that I picture to myself what I call the past oscillation of the pendulum at the same time as I perceive the present oscillation. Or, Supprimons pour un instant le moi qui pense ces oscillations du pendule, une seule position même de ce pendule, point de durée par conséquent. Supprimons d'autre part le pendule et ses oscillations. Il n'y aura plus que la durée hétérogène du moi, sans moments extérieurs les uns aux autres, sans rapport avec le nombre. 
withdraw, on the other hand, the pendulum and its oscillation. There will no longer be anything but the heterogeneous duration of the ego, without moments external to one another, without relation to number. Ainsi, dans notre moi, il y a succession sans extériorité réciproque. En dehors du moi, extériorité réciproque sans succession. Thus, within our ego, there is succession without mutual externality. Outside the ego, in pure space, mutual externality without succession. This excerpt I've been reading is actually from Time and Free Will, which uh, translates the original French title, Essay sur les données immédiates de la conscience. I always, you know, I always laugh at the discrepancy between the two phrases. Uh, essay sur les données immédiates de la conscience would be essay on the immediate data of consciousness. And that was actually his 1889 PhD dissertation. So Bergson was this very, very famous philosopher in his time, but strangely enough, we've not been, you know, we've not been talking about it so much for the last, let's say, 50 years or so. Just right now, he's coming back into fashion a little bit, and I'm very glad about that, given the fact that he's, I would say, without hesitation, my favorite philosopher. So let's zoom back a little bit, zoom out, just to have more of a general overview of our perception of time, the experience we have of it, the complex relationship to time we have, and the casual definition or mainstream definitions we might have of it, before we dive into uh, Bergson's thesis or point of view in that specific text. So when you listen to general expressions or just, you know, daily expressions of expressing what time is. We speak about taking our time, wasting our time, having time or not having it. In other words, the ordinary language suggests that time is an object we can possess, uh, a good of sorts at our disposal. We also make time an agent of sorts, where time, you know, passes, flies, it erases memories, it destroys, etc. But if we really want to consider time a certain type of reality, I doubt highly that it could be considered an object, a good, a tangible thing, even an agent. I think one way of looking at time is to consider it a dimension of the universe or reality. But even when we say that, it seems that time is very hard to define. 
here I will quote Augustine, who says this very famous phrase when he says, what then is time? If no one asks me, I know. But if I want to explain it to a questioner, I do not know anymore. So at the same time, so to say, it's impossible to deny the existence of time because it seems to be part of the necessary framework with space in which we can perceive at all. It seems to be an essential dimension of our experience and existence. But time cannot be really perceived at the same time. So none of our five senses can perceive it. We don't see, we don't hear, we don't touch time, nor can it be easily grasped with concepts and easily defined. So what exactly do we perceive then? You know, what, what, what is time and how does it affect us? Maybe what we perceive is a variety of uh, temporal aspects of the world or events, changes that take place in time, so to say. And that would lead us to a psychology of time perception, which is in a way what Bergson is trying to say. So what we're going to do in this episode is begin by looking at what characterizes time in physics, in science, then look at various philosophical views or remarks on time that the history of philosophy has to offer. We will then ask ourselves the question about which aspect of time is more real, past, present or future. Finally, we'll be looking at Bergson's approach to time in contrast to a quantitative conception of time he rejects in the text we've been reading at the beginning. So first, as I said, let's look more broadly at the definition of time that has been suggested in physics, for instance. So what's interesting here is that I'm in no way, shape or form a specialist of physics, but it's always, uh, it's always nice to look at this long-standing relationship, kind of like a friendly rivalry between physics and philosophy that has been existing for a very long time. And so I just want to here maybe try to look at uh, the way physics has been representing time. If we think of the universe, we think of it as a space that is three-dimensional, but also we can't possibly conceive of it without time. So this fourth dimension of time is crucial. The laws of physics start from a moment and they tell you what happens next, which allows us to predict what can happen. So the dimensions of time and space appear together. At the, at the same time, so to say. And actually, it is also the case when we look at the Big Bang theory, which is saying that time and space appear exactly simultaneously. But what is really the specificity of this essential fourth dimension of our universe? Well, time, first of all, is relative, right? So here I refer to Einstein. And depending on where we are, close or not to a gravitational mass, how fast we move, how close to the speed of light our movement is, and how much we're accelerating, time is going to greatly differ. The measure of time is going to greatly differ. 
What's also interesting about Einstein is that he seems to be incorporating time and space, so to say, to the point where he looks at time and space as working in the same way. But most people would say against Einstein that time and space actually radically differ. While space allows us to move from one place to another and go back to, you know, another place, time doesn't allow us to do that. In fact, we can choose to go in a past moment unless we are some kind of Trafalmadorian that you can find in Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. We can't travel in time. Time, in that sense, is irreversible. There is an arrow of time. We grow older, the universe grows older. Time actually makes the universe expand or dilate. The further away a galaxy is, the further and faster it goes. So that's also an interesting point that, you know, uh, thinking about time leads us to. And uh, here I just want to uh, mention a quick anecdote regarding Fred Hoyle, who was uh, the person speaking about the Big Bang, making fun of this theory at first by specifically using that phrase, Big Bang, as if, oh, really, at the origin of the universe, you have this kind of like, big explosion of sorts. And funny enough, it has been reclaimed by physicists who say, yes, indeed, there was this first primordial moment when time and space came into existence together. We actually could get vertigo thinking too much about it. It seems impossible to conceive that nothingness preceding the Big Bang, that spaceless and timeless nothing. We can't even say it is before, because it would give it a temporal dimension that it doesn't have yet. Let's turn now to philosophy and to a bit of history in philosophy. So if you look at metaphysics and ontology, very often when you try to describe what is, what is reality at all, you want to describe a static state of the world. And so in a sense, whenever you are uh, trying to define the universe, you are actually trying to put time between parentheses, so to say, because time precisely is about change, is about what is to become, it is, it's about movement, it is ungraspable. Whereas the very purpose of ontology would be to describe what is, not what becomes, not what changes. So in a way, existence or being and time seem antithetical in that sense. Because in order to observe what is, you're supposed to be observing something stable, something immutable, which is, you know, what reality, when you want to grasp it with concept, is supposed to look like. But it is not what reality is. So for philosophers who are trying to depict, to define reality or to give a static account of it, time comes as embarrassing because it is a moving element, the changing factor that keeps reality in a flow. And by trying to freeze frame reality, you might actually take away what is essential to it. It's flux, it's movement, it keeps moving, just as Heraclitus said, pantare, everything flows. If you look at Plato now, it's interesting to see that 
time has a bad reputation, so to say. Time is defined as a corrupted version of eternity. So here, eternity is supposed to be this transcendent, you know, outside of time, a realm of ideas, immutable truth, versus, on the other hand, the empirical world that is subject to change, subject to corruption, to aging, to death, etc. So you have really this highly uh, praised conception of eternity on the one hand, and this time that is perceived again as a corrupted version of this eternity in this lower world, the empirical world that we live in. Now, if we fast forward a little and look at Kant in the 18th century and what he has to say about time, for him, time is not so much part of the outer reality of the external world. It is as he says, an a priori form of our sensibility. What does he mean by that? Well, it is some internal or fundamental structure through which we can perceive reality at all. Think of it as a lens within us, so to say, part of the way our perception works, part of what makes us even able to experience reality. So that takes us a bit closer to what Bergson is going to be saying, but I'll get back to that in a second. Before, I just want to make a last remark. When you look at the different definitions of time, you find also different conception of what form it takes in terms of it being either linear, which means we would be on a line and you have past, present and future, right? And that goes on a, on a line that is, again, irreversible. But you also have conceptions of time that makes it cyclical. So we would be able to basically repeat a certain cycle, which leads to theories of, let's say, for instance, amor fati, which is how we should be learning how to love our destiny because it might or it will come back. So we've been, so far, exploring various aspects of time described in physics and different philosophical conceptions of time. Now let's look back at this linear conception of time with past, present and future. But if we look at that, what part of time, past, present and future, is real? If you look at past, well, the past is, you know, supposed to be traces, memories, but it's not here anymore. So its existence is not really an objectively tangible anymore, right? So it's not what is real, it's not really what is about time. Now, if you look at future, obviously, it challenges even more our thinking abilities because it is not here yet. And therefore, it appears as pure speculation, contingency, imagination, if anything. So what exists, what is real about time, seems to be the present. But the present itself, in its very instantaneity and fulgurance, is not thinkable either, per se, because there lacks distance. It's too actual, too ephemeral. It's this slippery soap that we can't grasp. And here I go back to Augustine, who said that if present were always present, if it wouldn't join the past, then it wouldn't be time. It would be eternity, out of time. It would be immobility. For present to be time, it needs to be past already. 
In other words, prisons can only exist by ceasing to exist. And that point of view by Augustine definitely echoes Bergson's point of view when he says, I quote, the pure present is an ungraspable advance of the past devouring the future. In truth, all sensation is already memory. So it's the past that gives form to our present. Maybe the past in that sense is more real than the present. So it's a past that gives form to our sense of now and to our sense of the future as well. In fact, what we have is the present of the past, namely the memory, the present of the present, that's the direct intuition, and the present of the future, the weight, the expectation. And that's what Augustine says about our experience of time. So you need the past in order to be even feeling the present, experiencing the present at all. My experience of now is actually also different than your experience of now, and in a way is a very subjective thing, depending on your memories, your expectations also, your anticipations, etc. Your desires, for instance, will shape our sense of time passing and our experience of the present just as much as our accumulated experience, our lived past. So you see how these three aspects of time get very intertwined. So by looking at this subjective or intimate experience of time, by diving into this personal texture it has, informed by memories on the one hand and expectations on the other, we're already getting to a Bergsonian conception of time as duration. Now, if we want to look back at the text we've been reading at the beginning, we have here two different conceptions of time. One is the one that Bergson rejects, and the other is the one that he embraces. So what Bergson rejects here is an objective or quantitative conception of time. For Bergson, time is not something that we see on clock. That is just the measure of time. It is time being specialized, as he says. So it is time being made some kind of space. So the time that we see on clocks is a time that repeats itself, that looks circular, that is homogeneous. The hands of the pendulum, they do the same thing over and over, just like the rotation of the planet which is the clock by excellence, very exact, always the same amount of time, right? That is being measured over and over, day after day, month after month, etc. So that is time considered objectively or quantitatively. It is the measured homogeneous time by clocks with hours, minutes, seconds, which are the same objectively and universally. This is not the real time. This is just for him a sort of mathematization of time, making it actually space. So what then is real time, that genuine you know, definition of time that Bergson endorses? Well, first of all, it looks at time as an accumulating process. So with time, there is this growth involved, this density, this thickness of time that clocks really don't measure, don't apprehend at all. So the conception of time that Bergson is endorsing 
is something that we can only perceive not with instrument to measure time, but with introspective intuition. So here Bergson is asking us to look at our subjective experience of time, emotionally as well. If you look at the way time is experienced, well, sometimes we are bored, for instance, and you know, you have time that dilates a lot at that moment or expands a lot, right? Sometimes we're excited and we see time actually passing extremely fast. So time, according to Bergson, is a fundamentally personal experience that allows us to see that it is a qualitative thing. And in order to better differentiate between the conception of time he rejects and the one he endorses, he calls the first one time and the second duration. So that duration can be better understood, I think, if you look at, at a metaphor that he's using to describe it. He speaks about the melody, a music that we're listening to. When you listen to a melody, you are not listening to a mere succession of discrete individual notes. You are not looking at the juxtaposition of different notes. You are actually seeing or feeling the music by basing yourself on what you have just listened right before. So the past notes melt into the present notes permeate one another and forms this organic whole, this confusion, this interpenetration that is precisely what duration is about. So quantitative time for Bergson might be useful. It is indeed necessary for social life, right? We need to say like, I'm gonna meet you at 4 p.m., right? So at least that 4 p.m. is universally recognized as such by everyone, right? But the real experience of time is profoundly subjective, and this is this time as duration that is not measured, but felt. That is actually not only, I would say, a suggestion for a definition of time, but it's also a suggestion for the very definition of our inner life, our consciousness, as a qualitative process evolution, maturation, stream of consciousness that makes precisely what consciousness is. Consciousness is not just a juxtaposition of different mental states, like separated pearls on a necklace, for instance, which is another metaphor that Bergson uses to describe how unfortunately we tend to think of our inner life as again this kind of juxtaposition of different feelings or thoughts that are segregated from one another. So this conception of consciousness, separated from its very temporality, Bergson rejects. What is consciousness then, if we want to try to define it in this temporal or durational aspect? Consciousness is really the past we are carried by and the future we look forward to. It is essentially temporal. It is both retentional, 
because we remember our past, you know, our, our past experiences, and it informs the present and the future we are throwing ourselves into. And it is pro-tensional precisely because of this projection towards the future that is always this perpetual movement that constitutes our moving, changing, evolutive consciousness. Memory, in that sense, is an accumulation and conservation of the past within the present. And the anticipation of future is what we are waiting for, what we expect, what we prospect. So all that constitutes consciousness. It is not some like static states that we could look at on a catalog and go back to, you know, page one if we are already at page 42. It is something that just is living and precisely because it's living, it is temporal by nature. So duration, again, is not an object of the mind. It's not something we just can look at from an external kind of point of view. It is not either a frame of our thinking in the way that Kant was describing it, but it is our mind, our consciousness itself. If you look back at the text, here I quote again, Within myself, a process of organization or interpenetration of conscious states is going on, which constitutes true duration. So what is duration? It is this process of organization or interpenetration of conscious states that is going on. And here I continue the quote, it is because I endure in this way that I picture to myself what I call the past oscillation of the pendulum, at the same time as I perceive the present oscillation. So you see how the past here comes and informs or participates to the present perception. And that's precisely how we experience, you know, the external world. We look at it with already the fresh memories of what we just perceived. It is a flow, it is a continuity. And at the end of that text, you find also this part where he says, Thus, within our ego, there is succession without mutual externality, and outside the ego, in pure space, mutual externality without succession. What he means here is that within us, there is this flow, this succession, without mutual externality, meaning there is no, again, secret, different mental states that can be juxtaposed to one another, that are external to one another. Actually, they are interpenetrated, they are working together, intertwined, so to say. And when he says outside of the ego, in pure space, there is mutual externality without succession. So it's more when you look outside and not in consciousness, but just in the external world, within space, you can precisely operate in terms of juxtaposition. But you cannot do that in your inner self. And we could use here another quote by Bergson in order to clarify that last point. He says that inner duration is a continuous life of a memory which prolongs the past into the present. The present containing within it the ceaselessly growing image of the past. Or, more profoundly, showing by its continual change of quality the heavier and still heavier load we drag behind us as we grow older. Without the survival of the past into the present, 
there would be no duration, but only instantaneity. While I hope I didn't lose any of you along the way, it doesn't hurt to wrap up a bit about what we covered today. So if you recall the remarks I made about the way time is conceived in physics, I mentioned how the universe is growing older. And this unavoidable aging process means two things. First, that time is unidirectional, irreversible. We can travel back in time, right? Correlatively, we can't experience things twice. We cannot pause, freeze frame the aging process to do, for instance, experiments and see how changing one factor could change the outcome. Because the whole thing keeps changing, has changed already. So the initial factors for the new experiment have changed themselves already by the time we begin to proceed to this new experiment. Now let's transpose these remarks about physics to our philosophical discussion about duration. Bergson is actually saying something relatively similar about time. And he speaks about time within us as the subjective personal duration that gives flesh to our consciousness, but also within reality or as reality to describe how the living universe works. The world itself, he says, is a fullness constantly swelling out. So reality itself is described by Bergson as a global and undivided growth, progressive invention as duration. It resembles, Bergson says, a gradually expanding rubber balloon. So here again we have a metaphor that helps us understand what Bergson means by duration. He also uses the metaphor of the snowball, unsurprisingly. He says, just like our inner duration, our duration as consciousness, the duration at play within reality goes on increasing, rolling upon itself as a snowball on the snow. So looking at reality as this dynamic maturation process makes every instant necessarily new, never the same as past moments, because every new instant is charged with past ones. And to go back to our conscious states, like present sensation, memories, thoughts, whatever is going on in our mental world right now, for instance, they too form a magma, a whole, which gradually gains a richer content as it grows, as it ages. As a duration, our consciousness is this moving, growing synthesis of all our memories, which creates, as we've been seeing, the present from the past, prolongs the growing past into the present, but it also reorganizes the past. So the accumulation of new moments reorganizes the whole of myself, my memory. Our present living experience reshapes or remodels retrospectively our memories. What I mean by that is that depending on our current mood or on how things turn out to feel at the end, we look back at the past very differently and can reinterpret 
or past or past events by shedding a different light on it, backwards. Now, there can be a lot of food for further thought on Bergson, and we've been actually speaking more about the past than about the future. But Bergson has a lot to say about this future he deems unpredictable. This newness is something extremely important in his philosophy. And he speaks about us as planning agents looking at that future, deciding, making choices, and has something very interesting to say about free will in that regard. But for now, let's say that I hope we'll have another episode on that soon. Thank you for listening to Can You Feel It, a podcast where we explore the world with a philosophical lens. Many thanks to my partner Johnny Nicholson for producing, recording and editing the podcast, as well as composing all of the music. Stay tuned for the next episode. <laughs>